si escuchas Crazy Outcome, es muy loco, ¿ok? Gente... Welcome everyone, you're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM, also streaming online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the D-Report. Today we'll get an opportunity to speak with community educator Dean Mayorga. Today's conversation will address the subject of indigeneity, the process of self-naming, politics of labels, as well as related topics. Dean, before you begin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Danielle. Uh, my name is Dean. Um, I am from Riverside, California. Um, like yourself, I'm, I'm a UCR alumni. I graduated in 2013 um, with, uh, under, with doing my undergrad in English. I'm a father. I self-identify as a Chicano, um, Chicanex. I work in marketing now and, um, and you're a fan of your show as well. Well, Dean, I, I want to thank you for joining us you reached out and you shared this article that I'll reference the title of the article. The article is called How the Chicana Discourse Silences Indigenous People from Mexico and Central Americans. And it's written by Jessica Hernandez. And unfortunately, we won't be able to really go through the whole article here, but there is a core uh, question, which is like, is there a difference between being indigenous and identifying as indigenous ancestry or indigenous descendants. I'll start off with that conversation with you. Do you see a difference between these two terms? So when I read this article, um, it definitely challenged a lot of my uh, preconceived notions about what indigeneity uh, means. Um, me being a Chicano, like I said, you know, I was, you know, subject to a lot of these, these courses and I love, you know, I love Chicano studies. Um, I learned a lot about myself and I really came to an awakening from myself. But, um, but I think reading the article, I came to understand that there is a distinction. I don't know if I would categorize it in that same way. If I would say those same terms, indigenous and indigenous descendants. I believe that Chicanos and other brown folks have an inherent indigeneity about them. And I think that it manifests in the way that possibly the clearest way is when racism acts upon us. Because I don't think that people commit acts against Mexicanos or Central Americans or anybody who would identify kind of within our, our group that's typically identified as because of some type of European ancestry. I think that they're targeted because they have some either obvious or some semblance of being an indigenous person, of being other, of being uh, less than white or other than white. So I, I do see that there might be a difference, but I don't know if I would categorize it the same way that this writer, Jessica Hernandez has. And I, and I let me be clear, I think Jessica Hernandez wrote a great article. And I think that, I think that she's a great mind to initiate conversations like these. Just to kind of backtrack a little bit, the article itself is voicing uh, a very personal narrative of her sense of critique or not fitting in or, or not appreciating what she was experiencing within her class in Chicana studies. And just so that I, 
clear up a little bit. I usually just reference the word Chicana studies to be as inclusive as possible. I'm standing on the conversation of when I say indígena, it ends with an A. But when I say her conversation in Chicana studies, uh, it's probably listed as Chicano studies, maybe when she was teaching it. But what she finds is this sense of critiquing this pattern of how we model the information within the context of the university. And, and that helped me a lot to make sense of what she was articulating because I actually disagreed a lot with what she was saying, not because I don't think she has a valid point. In fact, I, I really, like you, I think appreciated her perspective and her perspective was one that frankly states uh, Chicana studies does not have a place for current indigenous folk coming from Mexico and Central America. It silences indigenous experiences. And more than anything, she critiques this idea of who is indigenous and who is simply just someone who recognizes indigenous descendancy or ancestry into the past. And that's where I was really uh, captivated by because I have those conversations both personally and also professionally in the sense that I, one is my experience as an undergrad was in Chicana studies. That was my major. Then I pursued education, higher ed. I taught, I, I just finished a course in Chicana studies and I'm going to be teaching another one coming up. So I'm versed in that field. And to be honest, I struggle with the field also because I know that there's conversations that are foundational of like the 1950s and 1960s and some of them are revolutionary in the 80s too but the core material academically I think is a little bit different or maybe very different than the Chicana experience as a lived moment in time you know and those are the parts that I feel um, isn't necessarily captivated or expressed in uh, Jessica Hernandez uh, her article but I do think she poses a really strong question, which is, is there a difference between being an indigenous person presenting yourself as such and someone that can only recognize indigenous descendancy? And I figure that we can, for a minute, pose that question and see if we can work through it, even though that I don't feel it's really appropriate because you use the word gatekeepers I feel that way too. I get really upset with the way that our communities, in all the different ways that you can think of who your community is, has certain people that tells us, you don't belong here. And I can understand someone telling me, you don't belong here if I'm in your home. But to have a sense of community and be told you're not part of it, I can still anchor it literally your community so if you have five folks that you hold as your community cool and you don't want to have me be part of it i have a sense of that but if you are accessing this abstract imagined sense of us then who are you who nominated you the gatekeeper are you in charge or keeping a roster you know and that's where i critique it but but for the sake of this conversation just maybe just to to kind of think about unfolding it I'm hoping we can just tolerate the, the talk between what can we use to make sense of this divide between someone that is trying to make sense of someone being indigenous versus just indigenous 
descendant. Um, and I'll pose that question to you. I mean, like, what, what would you even begin with in order to make sense right. of that divide? Like, I, I know that I, I previously said that I wouldn't categorize it in the same way. And I, I realized that I didn't necessarily pose the way I would categorize it. And I think the way I would, you know, categorize these differences is really the differences of, of your geography and of your, um, and of your situation as an indigenous person. You know, I, I, for me, it got to a certain point where as I, a Chicano, as a, as a Chicana, I, I said, you know, I, I need to start owning my experience. I need to start owning every bit of my experience. You know, I spent long enough not knowing who I am. And now that I do know who I am, um, I can't let somebody negate necessarily um, my my inherent indigeneity. And so, but the thing is that I'm not from, um, I, I'm not from any particular community. I, I, I've been uh, put within the process of colonization long enough or to a large enough degree that I'm not no longer in communication, no longer in communication with my original indigenous community. And I have to accept that to, um, you know, I have to obviously have to accept that as a reality. I mean, I'm still doing my, my due diligence to figure out where my family came from and to do my best part in really understanding my, my culture and that aspect of myself. But being a Chicano does not, but any other facet that's not part of that original indigenous community doesn't necessarily negate the fact that I am living an indigenous life as, I, as I'm going through life. You know, the fact that the book of indigeneity cannot close off at colonization. It cannot just say, oh, you're colonized. That's it. You don't know who you are. And that's where it ends for you. I don't believe in that. I believe that um, I believe that as Chicanos, because we are a, a, a subgroup, I feel um, we in everything that we do, our expressions and everything that we do and our not just our traditions, but our new traditions and our new um, truths that we make for ourselves. I think that th through those new truths, we are being inherently indigenous in the way that we act. And so me living here in the United States, in this nation state, in this colonized situation, um, trying to make sense for myself, for me, that is different from, from what um, uh, Miss Jessica Hernandez is. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to assume her, her gender, but um, Jessica Hernandez um, is going through. But at the same time, it is still indigenous. I appreciate the way you kind of phrase this this way of articulating what it what it can mean to be identified as Chicana or Chicano. Because one of the things that I think a lot of us struggle with is this way of learning to own our sense of membership. And if we are fortunate enough to have a, like a loving circle, a family, we can anchor ourselves within the family and know that we have a place on this planet because we have a family. Then you extend it to something that's larger than the family, but you will still reference something that anchors you to, as you mentioned, geography. When we think about the Chicana and Chicano community, the Chicanx community, I think it's important to acknowledge that this community organically responded to the pressures of displacement within the U.S. Southwest. So that that is what we anchor. I didn't start referencing Chicana and Chicano until I was probably in my 20s. And it isn't because I didn't feel 
I could. It was one, it was not part of my conversation. I remember being in high school. Yeah, I was in high school the first time I picked up the picked up a book that had the term Chicano on it as a text. And it was called Chicano Theology. And I read it and it filled me up with something that I can't describe. It was this like sense of direction, sense of safety, but more than anything, information. Because what what is difficult is how we can think about the field of Chicano studies and the disconnection that may be possible from the community of Chicanas and Chicanos that are outside. And some of them, many of them, in complete disconnection from the discourse that is being unfolded and challenged. But I feel that there's a space of acknowledging something that you stated, which is uh, for many of us, there's a sense of loss when we're asked something very uh, specific, which is like, if you have an indigenous anchor, can you give me a reference of a community that you associate with? And for many of us, it's a blank. Like, no, I, I don't. The last person who could have said that was my grandfather or the last person who could have answered that question was my mother. And then is that going to be the reason why some of us are going to be told then you should not use that reference? You should not say you're an indigenous person. And I think that, I don't know, I stand objectively on a no, but I understand how hard it is for some people to come to terms with owning their own power so that I, I meet a lot of people that are apologizing for not knowing. And, and, and they reference different terms. Like they'll say, I feel Salvadorian, but I don't, I say it quietly because I don't know anything of El Salvador. And, and when they say that, I, I know these are my friends, but I'm, I'm thinking like, who's going to check you? I'm not, I'm not telling you you're not. But I think we're doing the same thing with, indi with uh, indigeneity, but I think it's also related to the politics of that term because when you reference your sense of the act of remembrance, I feel it's fair to understand that we are in that process um, multi-generationally because my family doesn't comfortably access Chicano discourse. My family's uh, narrative we access our indigenous community but while I think of my present southwest presence and as you mentioned the politics of racism if I do not acknowledge my indigeneity I feel that I am consenting to that arrangement the arrangement that says some of you are not going to count as native people because the nation state does not want to be threatened by recognizing how many native people are here. In fact, the nation state would rather that you access the Hispanic, the Latino and Latina rhetoric, right. which is definitely not indigenous, even though we celebrate a lot of the indigenous character within those terms. Cause I always think about the awkwardness of the Hispanic movement. Um, they hardly ever celebrate the Spanish stuff. I mean, they don't dress up, and put the armor on and the queen attire. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's yes. weird. They don't. But I'm surprised as to why don't you just use another term if it's if you don't want to celebrate sure. that. But I, I, I just want to kind of think about pausing for now because I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on the direction that you're taking. 
Well, I think that, you know, one of the um, one of the kind of um, problem factors within us being able to just identify as indigenous is the theory of mestizaje. And um, and it's it's kind of a, a complicated one for our channels as well, because it's not like we don't benefit from it. It's not like we don't act upon it with even something as ubiquitous as La Raza, you know, saying that. So I don't know, I guess I guess that's kind of where my mind leads to next. And I, for that one, that's a very hard one for me, you know. I appreciate your direction because I have invested a lot on race deconstruction. My background is in anthropology and Chicano studies, even, even the law. And when I try and bridge all of that within ethnic studies, I find myself sometimes at odds. I, I remember my last year as an undergrad in, in, in my Chicano studies department. And by that point, I, I was sounding a little bit probably like uh, Jessica Hernandez sounds in her writing or in, in the writing that I was pushing back on something that at, at the very beginning, I didn't know how to say it. And now I'm older, so I know what I was articulating, that the theory of mestizaje and the race discourse that we were using, which actually stemmed from a generation before that. So if I was in the, in the 90s in a Chicano studies department, I was using the discourse of like the 70s and 80s. You know, yeah, yeah, because there's that. It takes time to catch up. That's how it works. Like right now, for example, if you're in a Chicano studies department, hopefully you're using new stuff, but you're mm -hmm. there's still a delay because people yes. are pushing. And what I was pushing back against was the, the belief that we were biologically a different group of people and not just biologically a different group of people that was compatible to race discourse such as white, black, brown. But there was a rhetoric that. We were a new people, a product of a Spanish and a native. And if you were really kind of like more, more creative, also a black ancestry. And then I was going to ask, I wasn't trying to think about racial purity, but I, it didn't make sense because my belief at that period was I was starting to access material on race deconstruction, being that the biological belief that humans are separated into this blood perspective isn't right. accurate. It's an invention. And then it led us to think about, well, what, what do we do with mestizaje then? You know, because it was what we were using as discourse. And what do we do with la raza concept? The, the, the concept of la raza for me was a little bit easier because I maybe it was my own cheat uh, system, but I started to think about la raza as uh, synonymous to community and peoplehood and not necessarily right. race. But I feel that I was kind of being convenient with the language because sometimes people literally use the word la raza to imply race. But I was using it like la raza has room to talk about a people, a community. So I find that you're, I really appreciate your direction by thinking about how do we talk about mestizaje. And maybe that's why this is so important, this divide of gatekeeping indigeneity because mestizaje was specifically created to remove indigeneity like unlike right. unlike the united states where um, their version of blood quantum and blood mixing pushed people down toward um, the subordinate group mestizaje pushes people up so if you were mm -hmm. a mestizo you were definitely no longer native you know right 
And I think that's the legacy that we have. We carry a lot of people feeling, one, that they come from a generation that uh, invested great amount of energy to hide indigeneity because that was their line of success. And then I'm thinking about the ways that that results in a platform, as you mentioned, of loss. And we're living with that still. I think there's still a lot of people that uh, feel that mestizaje is real. That theory really kind of uh, injured us in ways that um, we're recovering from, specifically as the, the sense of apologizing, because I've, right. I've met a lot of people that feel ashamed that their grandfather maybe was not native and maybe came from another country outside of the of Mexico. There's some people that are even gatekeepers and push you out. So if you say I'm Chicano, but my mom is Lebanese, they go, ah, maybe you're not. Right. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about yeah. like, wow, what? Are, why are we doing that? And I think it has to do, as you mentioned, um, these theories, these models of understanding the world really saturated our minds and our hearts, you know, and our intellect. And we just right. speak it to truth. Yeah, I am. Um, I also think there's kind of like a, a, a more superficial reason too, and I think that it's, and it might sound funny, but it's like also this fear of being uh, having a proximity to whiteness. You know, I think for a, for people of color, um, you know, the fact that there are these scales and everything, you know, folks um, want to definitely own their pain. They definitely want to say, you know, I've I've gone through stuff too. You know what I mean? I'm in that group that is going through stuff too. Um, but even even if you if you think about like uh, white Latinos or light skinned Latinos or Chicanos, um, uh, there's this kind of fear of being uh, having this colorism so much, or or this fear of of having to acknowledge their privilege because I think they associate it too quick with their with their ego. You know what I mean? We are who we are, and I think that people people should be understanding about. Or, or wanting to know who they are. If you are a light-skinned Chicano and you have certain privileges, you know, I mean, that doesn't necessarily um, negate anything for your identity uh, as such, you know? Like, you you can be who you are and not have any type of ego about it. You know, as long as you're, as long as you're doing right um, in these movements that we have for these causes of equality. So I, I think that that's kind of a little bit too, you know, because if somebody isn't indigenous and they have, more and I think that's part of the reason people do a lot of uh, ancestry stuff like that because they want to see well how much exactly am I native how much exactly am I Spanish and you know if one outweighs the other you know if my indigenous side outweighs the other well then heck that's that's the one I'm, I'm going with but it's kind of foolish you know what I mean like and, and I understand that this is probably where that insertion of the conversation of, of having a community comes from but I also would counter with the sense of what is your, what is your indigenous experience now? Because I, I, I promise you that there's a part of it that is just inherently to you. If you know for a fact that you are, you know, something, uh, some type of other race, then you know what, own that too, not in some type of um, power concept, but own who you are completely. When I reference the race deconstruction part, I have been working for the past couple of years, really focusing on how these kits of uh, genealogy mm -hmm. are have changed. If you look at some of the ways that they were first kind of promoted, it was that they would tell you things like, I can tell you what native community you are part of. I can tell you what country you're from. And more and more, they started realizing that 
that that was inaccurate. Uh, biologically speaking, I always found it like uh, magical. Like, how can you tie DNA to a country? You know, because like mm -hmm. there's something missing in that logic because I can tie your DNA to maybe another human being to say how you're related to that human being. Right. But, but that human being can can get on a boat and find it find themselves in another country so that it's going to mess up your logic on where where do you measure where you belong where where the first person started or where they ended up and when mm -hmm. i think about this sense of tracing ancestry and specifically within the chicano discourse and the chicana discourse i don't invest too much on it personally but i am very much aware of how much investment is in circulation so that i remember a couple of years ago when i was really kind of invested in that like literally trying to understand what type of test that they were using how they were coming with their algorithms and and <laughs> and i found out a lot you know one of the things i found out is wow. that they're they're just guests and they're not even what we want them to be, but they are part of a database that gives you these little like markers. But one of the things that I found is that when people were coming up to me and were telling me like, Hey, Daniel, have you taken a test? Have you tested yourself? Mm -hmm. And I would get really like uh, quiet because the person telling me that is someone I cared for. So I we didn't want to like challenge what they were looking for. And what they were looking for was answers. And I now think about this in that way that like indigeneity one is a reference of history as political. Like our very concept of being an indigenous person is, right. is part of this colonial experience. We had our own name. We never called ourselves indigenous people so that we all had our own name. Right. But presently we are using that term, uh, one, to, to express the politics of belonging in, this, in a location. And it could be argued for a lot of us you, that like we feel awkward even because we have to acknowledge that we find ourselves in locations that our memory tells us are new and that's just memory because like your grandchildren will say something different maybe than you say you know their sense of memory yeah. will be much deeper in this geography and does that mean that they have more of a right to a connection to this land and for some people, the answer is yes. Every generation, the longer you've been in an area, should have more of an, uh, a right to connections to it. But I feel that we get stuck on this narrative of gatekeeping because I also don't want to sound like I am displacing indigenous communities in their respective locations, but like native people have been displaced globally so that communities that are the Purepecha and the Coachella Valley, or I meet someone that is from the Zapotec community in the Central Valley, uh, my family as Af Afro-Indigenous people, Costeños, and Nahuatl speakers from Guerrero, we find ourselves all over the U.S. And we, we struggle because the Hispanic movement erases our indigenous connection. But my argument is more so at the comfort at keeping it. Because one of the things that I think I heard from you was this commitment to be honest in the right for you to choose what you will 
call yourself, how you will recognize yourself. And that's an awakening that many of us struggle. You know, most of us are, are for the first time learning what pronouns we're going to use when we present, you know, ourselves to others. Some of us are changing our names. And I would never tell someone like, you can't use that pronoun. Or I remember when you had another name, how dare you change it? But why are we doing that with Chicano discourse, you know, or indigeneity? And that's where I struggle with this conversation. I think for ourselves, yeah, I think there is a, a power in agency. And, um, you know, just having this conversation, it's, it's also kind of opening my mind to, you know, going beyond even the, dis, the, the, the discourse, um, going beyond our current realizations, going beyond our current um, findings that we have. And really just looking at ourselves, um, uh, kind of taking a step back from Chicanismo or Chicanisma and exploring ourselves in a way that's not subject to necessarily geography or those politics you're, you're talking about um, or those traditions of politics. Um, like how you say, you know, um, it kind of changes over time. And um, I think I guess where my mind is landing on right now is, is you know, with, with, this, with this, um, this issue of geography, I think that. I think that it, it is a politics thing too, because um, folks, when they identify with themselves, I know that Chicanismo has been used um, with this with this uh, politics of geography, in that indigeneity was kind of hinged on this concept of Reconquista, and and kind of you know I think that people get lost again if they lose that that um, concept of geography. And and they lose that if they if they can if they lose their indigeneity then then what is their claim to the the particular relationship with this land right like so so I'm just another person in this land and I can't navigate this um, conversation or I can't navigate um, these politics because now I have to um, I have to acknowledge that um, my particular conceptualization of indigeneity um, has flaws and it might erase other folks who've been here um, and who who have laid claim to this land a long, long time ago. I feel the same way. I struggle with some of the ways that our conversations can be not just misinterpreted, because I don't think that's actually right to believe that someone doesn't understand what I'm saying, but can contradict and conflict with someone else's experience. So that my perspective and this is more recent, is that um, I don't apologize for being here. Like, I, I am someone that can reference multiple generations. I, I think of my grandfather, who was a bracero and worked all over California and Texas and did not end his life here. He passed away, crossed over in, in Mexico, but he gave so much of his youth and his strength here. And then my father also, my mother, myself, my children. So we have generations of, uh, of a geographic connection to this land, this specific part of the world. And that's how I want to stand on that. I understand the politics of displacement so that my very presence may equal or may signal someone else's displacement. But... I feel there's room to have a dialogue where, for example, you mentioned this uh, perspective of the uh, La Reconquista, which I remember 
just it, it made sense and it didn't make sense and i think that even the reconquista model i don't see it as much as present chicana discourse i think it's right. more of an awareness of where it has been um but it, it was something that spoke on the politics of of naming because that that period of time when the chicano movement emerges in the 60s these people these communities they didn't start off in the 50s and the 60s they they were here generations before and right. we can think about this idea of like what does it mean to think about time in reference to your membership and it, this circles back to the conversation on like is there a difference between being indigenous or indigenous descendancy and for some people it will be that they might say give it time and you have a difference but i find mm -hmm. it more important to signal something you reference that like the way we experience this space contemporarily within the politics of racism and the nation state it it's not inappropriate to be honest and say we are native people to this hemisphere and we have a story that changes on who you ask because that's the part about gatekeeping that I struggle with when people call each other out and say you don't belong to this community I'm I'm honest in that I understand if if you if you're having a gathering and you want to kick me out of that workshop I will hear it I will walk away but if your assumption is that there's this mythic imaginary community that I don't belong to then that doesn't make any sense because who are you what roster are you do you have in your pocket that my name isn't on there you know but yeah. that's where I feel more empowered because I feel that a lot of the conversations about Chicanismo and uh, Chicano discourse is about the balance between how it looks within academic discourse and how it looks from the community that lives it. And right. my, my background is in anthropology. That's what my doctorate degree is. And when I think about culture and community, I find it really empowering to think about that there's there are rich relationships of maintenance to those communities these are the the neighborhoods that we live in the people that know us and we know them and they're not they're not the, they're not the ones writing the books saying this is the official rhetoric but we are in conversation with that community so i think that's probably why this is such a hard discussion because one is that uh it stems out of an actual academic situation uh jessica mm -hmm. hernandez is an academic she's in a classroom i'm not sure if she uses the she pronoun so i apologize if that's inappropriate but i find it important to reference that this conversation is situated in a very unique spot and it has to do with those people that write and publish and to some degree start organizing and controlling the material we will use to think about ourselves I, I like this point you're making about how it's different from the discourse and how it's lived. I mean, uh, uh, when I think back on on my experience with um, uh, Chicana studies, I I have to say, you know, I mean, it's been it's been a, a while since I did my undergrad and I was taking those classes, but um, but I, I I do believe there is there's a difference with how it's framed within how we're talking about it in classrooms and how we're living it. I guess one of the ways I I, I see um, a difference of that 
of being in the classroom and being lived is now this new realm of, of social media and these ways that we're redefining uh, Chicanisma at a, a large degree and, and such with such a frequency. You know, it's like we're, we're getting these, these, these discourses back and forth, these conversations back and forth from folks who have such um, different views on what it means to claim that identity, to claim indigeneity, or to argue the counterpoint with, uh, with how we've said before, mestizaje. And um, it's being lived out. Like, I think that uh, Chicano studies and being a Chicano is in such a, such a more constant flux than it's ever been um, in a long time. And I, and I enjoy that. I enjoy the conversations. I enjoy seeing these identities being broken down and rebuilt, broken down and rebuilt. And um, because it challenges it for myself. And, you know, it's, it's even as a student, I was like, you know, it's only so many times you can, you can um, see the same old, same old thing and think that there's possibly got to be something other than that. And with these, these uh, new conversations that are ha happening, a, a lot of them happening on social media and happening in, um, and that um, impacts, you know, organizing groups and that impacts, um, you know, the young, the youth coming up. That's where I see it, a lot of it taking place and a lot of it coming into fruition. I like your perspective on looking at the way that new tools of communication affect community. Uh, there's an extensive wealth of information documenting that very analysis, which is like whether it's how nationalism is built or how gender is built, these perceptions, these categories of definition and how they are related to an infrastructure of communication so that you're identifying how these patterns of, of posting a meme, for example, mm -hmm. of doing a checklist of this makes you X and not Y, seems silly for some of us, but it actually has a great impact on how we perceive ourselves. Uh, some of the things that I remember thinking about is the way that I've met people that apologize for not growing up how I grew up. And... Mm -hmm we use the same term, you know? So for example, when I use the word Chicano or Chicana, I'm referencing an urban context and not an urban context of like high rise wealth, you know, as like gentrifying bodies, but like urban conscious and South Central. And, and I'm talking about the paletero and things that I think are universal mm -hmm. and, and they apologize because they go, oh, that wasn't my experience. Maybe I shouldn't call myself Chicana. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not gatekeeping you from that term. I'm just saying that was my experience. But other people will say, if you didn't have this experience, you shouldn't call yourself Chicana. But right. I find it interesting that that very act of giving these moments of assessment that are circulating online, they spin back into community. And, and we're now carrying ourselves that way we perceive ourselves by what we see. And there is something really interesting about uh, the Chicana identity. And I'm going to uh, quote uh, Jose Montoya, the artist, uh, the brother of Malakias Montoya. He was uh, in an interview a long time ago and he, he said this thing. He said, I don't understand how Chicanos ended up with the Romans. And then he, the person's like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't know how Chicanos became Latinos, you know? And, and I'm like laughing when I'm watching this documentary because I was like, this is old. He, he was right. confused at this process of removing Chicanismo and repackaging it into the Hispanic Latino 
demographic, which is part of the politics of renaming. And I think that's what happens here with uh, this idea of indigenous versus indigenous descendants, is that the writer is is playing the politics of, of reclassification. Unfortunately, it's not a fair thing to, it's fair to express your experience, but I find it really unfair to project it onto others, especially as we are learning to find a name that empowers us. I mean, she definitely did speak to her experience. I, I would say also too that I'm, I'm pretty, I, I'm sure that she feels through the Chicano discourse that some type of identity was projected to herself as well. That's what I'm getting out of it. And I, I really feel for her because I think that that's, you know, me going through Chicano discourse, I can see how, I can even see how when I went through it, there was some um, some areas that are probably just, um, they could have done, definitely did better with, with the, our understanding of this wide array of indigenous folks. You know, there's, there's a, you know, I think some kids still come out of, Chicano discourse, still thinking that they're all Aztec or, you know, kids probably still come um, come out of, you know, taking Chicano studies, um, you know, and thinking that um, there's a very machismo way of being Chicano. And so um, I don't, I, I would like to see that, you know, Chicano, the Chicano discourse kind of updated and revamped. But once again, I say that, you know, I took my classes, this is my undergrad in 2013. So there might have been some changes, you know, and, and updates and stuff like that. The way that we take on these moments in class, I think definitely uh, signal your analysis that like we were catching little moments out of an infinite possible uh, way of understanding ourselves. And right. when you think about uh, exiting Chicana studies as a major, or if you just took one class and they ask you, what did you learn? And if, if some of us said, I learned that I was an Aztec, mm-hmm. maybe that's something that was specifically kind of packaged by the instructor, which happens other times the instructor would be a little bit confused. She might be saying, wow, I didn't really have that as my goal. I have to look at my material and think about how it's being presented. But it also has to do with the way that we take these classes with very specific intent. Uh, Most of us that take classes, uh, we want them to feed us. And, and I think that's something that's important because I agree with you in that when we are in classes, we can catch how incomplete it is. You know, maybe the, the material that I hoped was going to be addressed doesn't, didn't get addressed. And now I, I wish I had taken another class. Um, <laughs> but Chicana Studies as a field emerges out of the politics of fighting for access to education because we saw how it served as a, as a place of legitimate information to build community so that the 1960s and 70s that start Chicana studies as like classes that you can take in a, in a college setting, we are benefiting from that. You know, many of us are, there's even a doctorate program in, in UC Santa Barbara in Chicana studies. So I'm just thinking about how that is disconnected, like getting a doctorate in Chicana studies does not make you the authority on Chicana studies. It just means you have a doctorate in Chicana studies. And I think that's how we get in trouble because the whole community is outside living life, expressing and documenting what it means to be Chicana and they're not writing a dissertation. I mean, yeah, there's only there's only so many times that you can look to Rodolfo Acuna 
as you know as your one you know main point of reference you know you, it's it's something that takes place outside of the outside of the the classroom um like how you mentioned and yeah it's just it's it's exactly examples like these that these conversations are happening and these possibly are the fulfilling moments for those type of students who are looking for more and so that's why it's important, you know, if you're inspired by, you know, Chicano studies, if you're inspired by it to a, a certain degree, or if even if you're left wondering or wanting for more, that's why it's important. And I think that possibly the most beneficial thing that ever happened for me, at least going to Chicano studies, is that it turned me into an organizer, it turned me into an activist, and it turned me into somebody who realized that there was um, injustices that were not going to stop the minute I stopped learning about them. And so um, I still think that that's very true for Chicano studies. I think that's very true for the kids to this generation that are that are learning it now that are going to go through the same awakening that I went through. When I was looking over um, Jessica's letter, or I'm, or I'm sorry, her, her open letter, I guess that's why some people have such passionate feelings about it and may not uh, respond with such a tempered reaction and, and like that. But but it's important to to listen to everybody and and I, I think at the end of the day, we can make the discourse better as well as what's happening outside of the classroom. Dean, I want to thank you for sharing this conversation with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Danielle. I appreciate it. You've just finished hearing a conversation with Dean Mallorca, community organizer, educator, journalist. We shared an opportunity to discuss the subject of indigeneity within the Chicana community. I appreciated the opportunity to address the subject of defining indigenous, indígena, with the intent of being safe and respectful, but also honest and critical of ourselves. I feel that most of us, regardless of our age and preparation, are walking toward in that process of becoming stronger, more prepared, so we can build a much healthier sense for ourselves and the world that we engage with. I also send out gratitude toward Jessica Hernandez, the author of the text we were referencing. The text is How the Chicano Discourse Silences Indigenous People from Mexico and Central Americans. I hope you found this conversation of interest and relevant and take it to your respective circles to continue. Before I sign off, I want to thank everyone for the opportunity to share these conversations these past years as part of KUCR programming. I'm not sure if the G-Report segment will continue to be transmitted here at KUCR. And therefore, I want to take this opportunity to express my deep gratitude, my sincere appreciation to the community of listeners that have enriched the conversation with their direction and feedback. Hopefully, the G-Report continues to be aired here on 88.3 FM. But if you don't hear the segment, you will be able to find it online at dreport.org. You've been listening to Daniel with the G-Report here on KUCR 88.3 FM, the radio station of UC Riverside. Thank you. Gracias. La Socamati. Stay safe. Stay strong. Let's continue the conversation.